You know, I've been uh, trying to think and actually prayed and asked the Lord, how can we uh, get more people who go to the first service to go to the second service? You know, and uh, thank you, Lord, because uh, this might do it, you know? But really, uh, you know, we only have uh, children's programming in the early service. And so I'm trying to think, people, especially without children, if it wouldn't be an inconvenience, wouldn't upset everybody's routine, if you'd go to the second service, it'd make a little more room because we're pretty well maxed out at this service uh, on many Sundays. And so uh, I'm hoping that people now will come to the 11 o'clock service this morning and say, oh, this wasn't so bad, and uh, so on and so forth. Anyway, hey, you know what? Uh, one of the trials uh, that happens to us, we've been singing today about how it's well with our soul and in the midst of uh, whatever comes our way and so on, but one of the things that uh, happens, one of the trials that happens to every genuine uh, Christian is the experience of rejection. Have you ever, you know, experienced being rejected by somebody else? Uh, you know, right from the very get-go, I often think, you know, uh, God comes to Adam in the garden and he says, you know, did you eat from that tree? And, and Adam's like, well, it's the woman that you gave me. And I think Eve is standing there and thinking, you know, wow, how quick he throws me under the bus. You know, we're just about created and oh, right under the bus I go, you know. Uh, that feeling of uh, rejection. Uh, I think Jeremy explained as he grew up, you know, uh, and parents were not together and there wasn't a lot of love there. And it's that feeling as a kid that, you know, nobody really cares about me. And uh, that feeling of rejection uh, leads to all kinds of things in our life. I think we all get hurt. We all get rejected by other people, especially as Christians. And uh, basically, I think rejection happens when somebody either knowingly or unknowingly withholds their love from us. You feel rejected when somebody, sometimes knowingly, intentionally, and sometimes unknowingly, just sometimes people are just so caught up in their own deal that they're not even thinking about, you know, what I should be doing as a mom or a dad to extend love to my children and, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, sometimes it's deliberate, sometimes it's intentional, uh, sometimes it's because of misunderstanding, and uh, sometimes it's completely unintentional. But I think it happens especially if you're loyal to Jesus. If you're willing to be loyal to Jesus, if you're willing to enter into conversations and bring truth to the table, if you're willing to embrace values that God has instilled in you, and you move out among the people in the world, you're going to experience... Uh, that feeling of rejection. And, and whether it's intentional or, or unintentional really doesn't make much difference, but the question is, you know, when you do experience that kind of rejection, when somebody says or does something unkind or you feel ignored or misunderstood or maybe even condemned, the question is, how do you respond? What do you do when you have that experience? Do you reject the other person back? Because that's what's normal. When somebody rejects you, it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction. Well, I'm just going to reject them back. Uh, you ever give somebody the silent treatment? I feel rejected, so I'm just, you know, not going to talk to you. Uh, do you avoid other people? I think it's a huge problem, you know, like in the Christian community, uh, that, you know, I experience when I get out there and I stick up for the Lord and I'm loyal and I share the gospel and so on, 
I experience rejection. So you know what? It's just more comfortable to stay with the Christians. It's kind of, well, if you don't want to know about my Lord, too bad for you. Goodbye. I'm not going to make the effort. I'm not going to set myself up to feel this rejection. You know, I think to myself, you know, when's the last time you shared your faith with an unbeliever? And why is that? Well, because that feeling of rejection hurts. And, and why set yourself up for that? What do you do when you experience that feeling of rejection? Do you become critical and judgmental or start gossiping or get angry or maybe even violent? Or do you disengage? Do you just say what you know other people want to hear? even though you don't mean it, and you start to be kind of untrue to yourself. How do you respond? Or, uh, you know, do you try harder to please other people, to try to get them to accept you? Or, you know, do you just disengage completely and give in to some kind of addiction or some kind of compulsion and just try to sidestep life altogether because it's just too hard? And we just kind of get out there in, in left field. You know, in marriage, for example, your spouse, maybe knowingly, maybe unknowingly, uh, withholds their love from you in one of a thousand different ways. And you feel maybe perhaps rejected. Maybe you had the best of intentions, but they came back and said, you know, not good enough. And uh, you feel rejected. And as soon as you experience that reality of rejection, uh, you have a choice. You have to decide. How are you going to respond? How are you going to react how are you are you going to reject back are you going to let that hurt of rejection control you are you going to let that feeling of being rejected by somebody else cause you or take control of your life and, and make you somebody you're not and it's really important i think to kind of think about this because if you do then you begin to get caught in this cycle of rejection I do a little bit of marriage counseling, and it's so easy for couples to get caught in this cycle of rejection. You hurt me, I hurt you, you hurt me again, I hurt you again, and it just goes round and round and round, and the whole thing just kind of winds down. And at some point, if somebody can't kind of break into that cycle and turn that thing around, but somebody's going to feel the rejection and have to be able to do something other than just reject back. And you know, this happens in church all the time. Uh, it happens to church people, I think, pretty regularly. Somebody will say, you know, nobody talks to me. Nobody listens to me when, when I talk. Nobody chooses me to get involved. You know, nobody notices me. I'm leaving this church. You make me feel rejected, I'm going to reject you back. And you can go your whole life and just allow that reality, that trial of rejection, to just sort of control you. And then you start taking everything people say personally and you begin to cling to people who accept you and avoid the people who seem to bring on rejection. And that's where the church stops witnessing. It's where the church stops getting out into the world like light and salt and, and, and where God intends to throw us in there and to be able to deal with that reality that even when people reject us, to realize there's another option than to reject people back. Some people try very, very hard to you know, just get accepted and uh, uh, they cling to people who accept them and avoid the people who don't. And so, you know, this is, I think, how affairs get started. 
uh, wow, I go home and I feel rejected. I feel not appreciated. I feel like this person doesn't understand me. They never listen to me. They don't take the time. Da -da 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 -da. But I go to work and, oh, wow, you're so wonderful. Oh, you look so pretty today. And before you know it, you know, I'm going to where I'm feeling that acceptance and I'm staying away from where I'm feeling that sense of rejection, that reality of rejection. I think it's why so many of us stop witnessing. Uh, and, you know, uh, some people just get to the point where they say, you know, I, I just don't care anymore. Uh, and I, I'm just going to be irresponsible. I'm going to be undisciplined and so forth. But I want to suggest this morning that you and I, we have a much better choice when that reality of rejection comes our way. We can choose to believe what God says about us is true. And that what the person who's rejecting us is saying is not true. And we can break that cycle by allowing the very presence of God and His Spirit to change us so that we don't enter into that cycle of rejection. And uh, we can actually make our faith work for us. You know, uh, God says to you, you're not rejected. You're deeply loved. You're accepted in Christ. Uh, God comes to us in the Bible and He asks, I think, a rather penetrating question. He says, look, if God is for you, who could be against you? If God is for you and accepts you and who you are in Christ, who could be against you? And this uh, little feelings of rejection and so forth, consider the source, you know, and who matters more to you than God? And so in the midst of that cycle of feeling rejected, we as believers have, you know, uh, a better choice. Sometimes when people say or act toward us in ways that are different from what God says, we can simply choose to believe what God says is actually true. My personal, in my personal life, I often go back to Ephesians chapter 1 uh, to kind of reorient if I feel like rejected or misunderstood or whatever. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, just, you know, I reorient. Who am I? Who are you as a believer? Listen to what the Bible says and ask yourself, is this how you think about yourself? Is this who you really are? This is who God says you are. Verse 3 says, you know, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed Dave DeVries in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I am a rich man. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is mine. That's who I am. Okay? Look at this. Verse 4. For he chose Dave DeVries, you put your name in there, in Christ before the creation of the world. Do you believe that about yourself? I mean, how old are you? I think the world is maybe, you know, 7,000 years old or so, six, 7,000 years. Before the creation of the world, God had you in mind. When we get to the book of Acts, it's like, you know, God chose where you were going to live and the times in which you were living. And so all of us were in Adam. And God, because he's God, you know, knew us and chose us. Do you feel chosen in Christ? So somebody rejects you. I think rejection is probably the opposite of being chosen, right? But before the creation of the world, the Bible tells me God chose Dave DeVries in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And then God goes about to do it in Christ. In God's mind, this guy is holy and blameless. 
because God has chosen to wash me clean. My sins, past, present, and future, were all on the cross. That's who I am. Do you believe it? So the next time somebody rejects you or says, oh, you're not worth it, or da 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 I mean, I go here all the time and I say, look at this, in love he predestined Dave DeVries to be adopted as his son through Jesus Christ. Who are you? I'm a son of the living God. I'm a daughter of the living I belong to the very family of God. God's my father, Jesus is my brother, and I got the family spirit. That's who I am. So, you know, you want to reject me, that's okay. I have a place I can come back to to find out you're wrong, God's right. What a difference it makes, no? Um, in accordance with the pleasure of his will. This is what God is pleased to do for me. Uh, to the praise of his glorious grace in which he has freely given Dave DeVries in the one he loves. In him, Dave DeVries has redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of his sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on Dave DeVries in all wisdom. He knew exactly what he was doing. His grace lavished on me. That's who I am. I am a product, Jeremy Dane is a product of God's grace lavished according to God's riches. I, you ever think about this? How much grace comes your way? Well, it's according to God's riches. How rich is God? Right? If a poor person says, I'm going to give you a gift according to my riches, that's one thing. If a rich person says, I'm going to give you a gift according to my riches, I just inherited, you know, $100 million. Here, have a million. I heard about this guy this week who sold a business at $300 million, gave all of his grandkids a million bucks. Yeah, well, that's giving according to your riches. And God is saying, I'm going to give you my grace according to my riches. I mean, I'm not going to lack for a thing if I'm the product and the recipient of the grace of God according to how rich he really is. Oh, this is isn't this a great passage? And he made known, verse 9, and he made known the mystery, he made known to Dave DeVries the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect at the times that will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. And in him, Dave DeVries was chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with his purposes of his will. And then Paul says, in order that we, and I think that we is about the Jewish people, in order that we, the Jewish people, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you, Dave DeVries, also were included in Christ. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, Dave DeVries, you were marked in Christ with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. You don't ever have to sweat it that you're going to lose heaven. You don't ever have to worry that you could slip up and God's going to say, I'm done with you, and you're out. Because it's been sealed, this inheritance. Who are you? And the next time somebody says you're something different than what God says, you have a choice. You can say, I'm not going to believe what you're telling me is true. I'm going to believe what God tells me is true. And I'm going to respond in an entirely different way. And so the next time we feel rejection, you know, if I believe God, 
These feelings of rejection that come my way are not going to control my life, and instead, I'll stay free to be able to love the next person in spite of the fact that they're rejecting me. So I can witness to somebody. They can say, you're a jerk. You don't know what you're talking about. I can continue to love that person, and I can continue to go back, and I can continue to have confidence that God can use that. My hurt, he can use. Romans 8, 20, God can cause all things to work. Isn't Jesus, the worst thing that happened to Jesus, put on the cross? What a horrible nightmare. He was perfect, but it became the best thing. God can take the hurt, the worst things in our life, the rejection that we feel from other people or situations or the world in which we live, and turn the hurt of that into something very, very good and a blessing for the next person. If only we Christians would respond like Jesus and go to the cross willingly and experience the rejection on behalf of the other person like Jesus did for you and me so that God can bring healing into the next person's life. And so you get a guy like Jeremy, you know, and he understands what God's done for him and he works in higher ground and somebody comes along and they're desperate and so they come. Maybe the court orders them to go to some addiction program and so forth, but they fight you tooth and nail and they reject you and you tell them the truth and you tell them your story and you... And they just keep rejecting. How do you keep loving people? Well, you go back to what God says is true about who you really are. Okay, and so the Apostle Paul, we saw last week in Acts chapter 21, goes to Jerusalem. He goes to his people. He goes to the people that he really loves and cares about, and he stretches himself to identify with those people. You remember, if you were here last week, he joins in um, with some people who are uh, under a Nazarite vow, and uh, not only that, but he actually agrees to pay uh, for sacrifices, which are part of this vow, that are sin offerings. Now, this is the great apostle Paul, right? Who wrote Galatians, Romans, and, uh, you know, is up against, uh, he hates all the legalistic, you know, uh, things about the Jewish uh, faith and so forth. But if you turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you might remember Paul is just, you know, kind of doing what he said he's supposed to do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, Paul says this to the Corinthian church. He says, though I'm free and I belong to nobody, okay, I make myself a slave to everyone. I'm a servant, like Jesus, to everybody. And he says this, he says, I'm out to win as many people as possible. I am out to influence for Christ as many people as I can. So what do I do? Verse 20, to the Jews, I become like a Jew so that I can win some Jews. I'm going to identify with whoever it is that God leads me to influence for his cause. So to the Jew, I become like a Jew. To those under the law, I become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those who are under the law. To those who don't have the law, the Gentiles, I became like one not having the law. Though I'm not free from God's law, I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those who don't have the law. To the weak, I become weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. Paul says, it's not about me. It's about who I am in Christ and why I've been chosen and why I've been blessed and why God has loved me. It's so that that can pour through me to the next person. And so nothing is more important to me than influencing the next person. 
And so I will accommodate myself the same freedom that gives God's grace to Gentile people to be free from the ceremonial laws of Judaism is the same grace that gives uh, freedom to Gentile people to not have to do those laws. That same grace gives freedom to the Jewish people if they want to keep doing those ceremonial laws to do them, but they have entirely different meaning once you come to Christ. They are pregnant with an entire new meaning. Uh, Barb and I were at this seminar, and uh, part of this is a Jewish guy put on this seminar, and he explained to us, like, you know, there are seven feasts that God laid out for Israel, seven. Four of them are in the spring, three of them are in the fall. This guy laid out how the first four parallel exactly the first coming of Christ, and how the second three that come in the fall, starts with trumpets, parallels the return of Christ. So, you know, you could be a Jewish person and you could be celebrating these feasts, but if you understood Christ and believed the scriptures, they would have an entirely different meaning. Uh, I don't know if I have time, but um, one of the, um, uh, like last week or so, we had uh, uh, one of our uh, missionaries was with us and our missions team met with this missionary who's uh, reaching out, uh, his, his work with the navigators is reaching a lot of Muslim people, Okay. And so imagine uh, there's a whole bunch of people that have been in Islam all their life and they're coming to Christ and now there's a huge debate in the church as to whether or not a Muslim person has to come out of, Mus out of Islam completely, out of their culture, get away from their family, you know, just and become a Christian in a very outward sense. Or should those Muslims who come to Christ stay in there and be an influence and be a light and and, and live for Christ in the midst of Islam, in the midst of their family, in the midst of the culture, until the culture kicks them out. And it's a huge debate. And it's the same thing that Judaism faced. Should the Jews, you know, the Jews said, oh, if you're going to become a Christian, you first got to become a Jew, like us, and have all these laws and, and all of that. And Paul's like, no way! You know, and the same thing Paul is defending here is saying, you know what, if you're Jewish and you come to Christ, you don't have to leave everything. You just have to understand that those laws will never save you. Only Christ will save you. But all of those laws were designed to lead you to Christ. They all have a new meaning now. They're all rich with, you know, the essence of our salvation in Christ. And so Paul does his best, you know, to identify with the Jewish people. However, notice in uh, Acts chapter 21, Paul's totally misunderstood, just like is what's going on today. And, and, you know, I think you can apply this to anything. You can be Look, you're an American, but you know what? You've got to become a Christian. As an American, you champion all these American values. You come to Christ. You know what? You've got to get out of America. You've got to get out of being an American and being a Christian first. You're going to have a whole new set of values, right? Or if you're uh, a Giants fan. Oh, my main identity is I'm a Giants fan. That's who I am, you know? Well, listen, you've got to get out of being a Giants fan and get a new identity in Christ. It'd be a Christian first, Giants fan second. Right? And you just go, Roman Catholic. Well, that's probably more relevant to people because, wow, you know, I was in Catholicism, I met Christ, and some people say, got to get out of the Roman Catholic Church, it's evil. It's wrong. And they're right. And for some people, that's the right thing. But for other people, it's like, no, you know what, I'm going to stay in here and keep slugging because there's a lot of people in here who are lost, and I'm going to become all things to all people in the hopes that I can win some. I'm going to pretend I'm a Catholic. And go along with this in order that I might influence. Them. And that's what Paul did to the Jewish people. He went back into Jerusalem. He pretends he's Jewish, if you will. 
and he's looking to influence people. However, he's totally misunderstood. And in verse 28 of chapter um, 21, um, you know, they seized Paul. They stir up the whole crowd. They're shouting, men of Israel, help us. This man, uh, this is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and against our law and against this place. That is not true. That is a rumor. That is not true. It's a rumor. Somebody said a rumor is something that doesn't have a leg to stand on, yet travels faster than anything with legs. A rumor is always based on half-truths, lies, prejudices. Yet these Jewish people prejudiced against the Gentile people. And that's the breeding ground for rumors. And so this rumor crops up that Paul's against the Jewish people, against this place, you know, in the temple and, and, and all of that. And it's not a true rumor. Uh, so verse 30 uh, the whole city is aroused. People come running from all directions, seizing Paul. They drag him from the temple, and immediately the gates are shut and so forth. Verse 35, uh, it says, When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers, and the crowd that followed them kept shouting, Away with him! Away with him! Get rid of him! Just like they did against Jesus. I think that's probably creating a little feeling of rejection for Paul. What do you think? Here's Paul goes out of his way to try to identify with the Jewish people, right? I tried to make the point last week that I wasn't so sure that he should have ever gone there, but he did. And so he does everything he can to, you know, kind of come alongside of them, and then he's rejected. But listen, the rejection doesn't control Paul. That feeling of rejection does not take over Paul's life. Uh, that rejection was based on a rumor, and Paul knew it, and Paul knew who he was in Christ, and he was secure in Christ, and, and so on and so forth. And so Paul, in verse 1 of chapter 22, says this. Uh, he asked for permission to talk to the crowd, and he says, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. The word is apologia, from which we get our word apologetics. Paul's going to defend the faith. He's going to defend what he's... He's going to defend the gospel, if you will. And uh, this is really an important thing. He's going to give a reason. You remember uh, Peter in 1 Peter 3, 15 said, always be ready to give an answer to anybody who asks you to give the reason for the hope that's in you. What's the reason, DeVries, that you can be so confident that when you die, you're going to heaven? How can you live like How can you be so sure? Well, let me tell you, it's not based on anything I do. Here's the reason. It's an apology. It's a, it's a defense, you know. And I think we should never, you know, defend ourselves, but we should always defend the gospel. And when the gospel's at stake, it's our privilege to come to the defense of the gospel. When it's us, sometimes, you know, the best defense for when, when we're being rejected and it's not about the gospel, it's just us, sometimes the best defense, just be quiet. Don't even dignify the accusation with a response. Like when Jesus you know, was challenged by Herod, and Jesus just kept quiet, remember? Sometimes that's the right thing to do, and it's wise to uh, do. But notice how Paul responds here when he's treated unjustly and when he feels rejected and experiences this massive rejection. Uh, notice, first of all, he calls the crowd brothers and fathers. You know, if you get into the rejection cycle... You're, you're, you're forgetting that, guess what? You're just like the other person. We're, we're all dependent on the forgiveness and grace that God would lavish on us in order for us to change. And we're all in this together. And you're not better than them. You know? And so Paul like, addresses these people 
and, and he calls them brothers, and he calls them fathers. He identifies with them. And look, it says he speaks to them in their own language. In their own language. And uh, I, I want to... There's, there's a book that I think is a great book. It's called The Five Languages of Love. You ever read this book? Excellent book. It's all about the fact that people hear the message of love differently. So if you're married, you know, and you hear, like, my wife, if, if I want to say I love you to my wife, if I get a card and send it to her at work, and it says, hey, just thinking about you, and I love you, and so forth, I'm golden. <laughs> I mean, I'm good. I'm good for six months. I do something like that, right? That's her language. She hears that and appreciates it. Now, because that's her language, if she gets a card and sends it to me here, I say, honey, it's 50 cents for a stamp these days. Save it. It doesn't do it for me. That's not my language. I know it's yours. I know it means a lot to you, but you know, it really doesn't have the same effect on me that it has on you. We have two different languages. You want to make me a turkey some night? It's my language. Okay, so you're in the world, you're a Christian, and you've got to speak the language to the person who's rejecting you. You've got to be able to figure out, like, well, how are they going to hear the message of God's love? And Paul, you know, I mean, it's such a great... Paul says, look, he says, I'm a Jew. I'm just like you. I'm just like... I'm one of you. He finds common ground with the people who are trying to murder him. He says, wait a minute, you know, I'm just like you. I'm a Jew, he says, and, and I was born in Tarshish, but I was brought up here right in this city in Jerusalem. And guess what? I was under the tutelage of Gamaliel, the best rabbi there is. I'm just like you. I'm one of you. I went to the same school as you went to. You know, I, I grew up in the same city. I have a, you know, look, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our father's and I was just as zealous for God as you are today. I think that's a huge statement. Paul, who's being murdered, kicked in the face, spit at, dragged around the city, arrested, the whole thing because of these people's rejection of him. And Paul takes all of that, he puts it in the best possible light of the people who are rejected and says, I understand, you're being zealous for God. That's huge. You ever get in a fight with somebody and try to put the other person in the best possible light? The person who's rejecting you. Hey, I understand you. You're just doing what you think is best. You're giving it your best shot. I appreciate what you're doing. And that's what Paul does here to the person who's rejected, the person who's trying to kill him. You ever think you could get in a marriage situation, you get that rejection cycle going, and somebody says, wait a minute. I know this feels like rejection, but I know you're trying your darndest best. Because I know you and I appreciate you and I understand you and where you're coming from. And that's what Paul does to these people who are rejecting him in the midst of this rejection. And uh, you know what? Uh, something really remarkable, my opinion, very remarkable happens. It says there in verse 2, when, when the crowd, which is absolutely out of control, I mean, just think of the scenes on TV that you see in some of the places all, all over the world today of crowds that are getting together and just going nuts and you know, beating on each other, and so totally chaos and so forth. Look what it says in verse 2. The whole crowd, when they heard Paul talk in their language, became totally quiet. How'd that happen? How do you go from 
total chaos to total quiet. I think God showed up there. I think God said, you know, I've got a man in Paul who believes who he is in me, and he's willing to testify, and he's willing to love these people and identify these people like Jesus did when he came down out of heaven and became one of us in the incarnation. And I think God shows up, and everybody's quiet. And all of a sudden, for the first time maybe, and who knows how long, everybody's listening. And I want to say, you know, when you get into that rejection cycle with somebody, that the key to kind of break it is to stop and listen. Listen. Somebody speaking the truth, doing it in love, and somebody else actually listening. I mean, how else do you explain? The Bible says it got very quiet. You ever been in a kind of conversation where everybody's arguing and they're going round and round and round and, you know, and then maybe somebody says something that's heartfelt, that's, you know, sacrificial on their part, puts the other person in the best light, and all of a sudden there can be quiet and there can be conversation. And I think this is kind of, I think God shows up here, you know? And, and this whole uh, cycle of rejection is, is broken because Paul doesn't reject the people back. And uh, he, he begins to speak to them. Brothers, I'm one of you. I understand. I, just, I know you're just being zealous for God and, and so forth. Uh, and he puts it all in the best possible light. And Paul's just like remaining pretty calm here. Okay? And, and uh, so, uh, you know, uh, I was there, Paul says. I, I, I was one of you. I was there. And look what he goes on to say. He says, you know what? Verse 4, hey, I persecuted people like me too. I understand why you hate me. I understand why you reject me. I understand why you won't listen to me. I understand why I'm a threat to you. Because guess what? I was where you were at. You know, I think that's why a guy like Jeremy can be so effective in a ministry like Higher Ground. Like, I understand why you don't trust me. I understand why you won't listen to me. I was where you were at. I used to be there. And that's what, Paul, I, did. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death. I arrested men and women, threw them into prison. And you can go ask the high priest. They can all tell you. Probably some old guys there who remember when Paul did all that. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. He did. He was. He was just like us, you know. And, and then he tells how, you know, he got letters so he could go to Damascus and he could keep putting people in prison, put them to death and so forth. And then in verse 6, he starts to give his testimony. He says, but listen, something happened to me. I was right where you're at. I understand where you're coming from. I always think that like people who work with kids are so great if they can remember, I was just like you as a teenager. I understand the temptations. I understand where you're at. I understand what happened to you. I understand how hard it is to trust God and, and he's invisible and the world is real. And da, 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 da. I, I was there. And Paul says, but listen, something happened to me. I met Jesus is basically what he says. I was on my way to Damascus and you know the story here. And, oh, we're out of time. Um, you know, he tells his whole story here, and again, he brings Jesus into the discussion. The crowd is still quiet. They're listening. He introduces Jesus. Very few people will reject you if you're just sharing your own story. Let me just tell you how I met Jesus. Let me just tell you, I was going about my life. I was doing this. I was doing that. Here's what happened to me. Like Jeremy came this morning and said, you know, here's what happened to me. Somebody invited me to church. Somebody, you know, cared enough about me to bring me to a meeting. Somebody recognized I needed help, put their arm around me and said, I'll help you. Etc., etc., etc. Well, 
Uh, Paul is trying to talk these people through, and uh, I wanted to just get to verse 14. I'm going to just go a little bit over to uh, camp out on verse 14. And Paul says, look, there was a Jewish guy there in Damascus, Ananias, and he came, he laid hands on me. You remember, he was devout. He was respected by all the Jews over there. And so again, Paul is working really hard to, to help everybody understand that, how Jewish he really is. But this guy, Ananias, in verse 14, then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will. Okay? And to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. Now, I want to invite you to camp out on that verse and, and understand this exact same thing is true about you. The God of our fathers, the God of the, who created the world, the God who wrote the Bible, has chosen you. If you're a believer today, if you're a Christian, it's because the God of our fathers has chosen you. It means the world to be chosen, doesn't it? It's the opposite of being rejected. The God of the universe has chosen you. Chosen you for what? To know his will. He's chosen you to get to know him, and in that process, you can come to understand who he is and what his will is. You are being brought into the inside of the universe, to the mind of the creator. You have been chosen to know God and to know his will, and look, and to see the righteous one. I am so glad I'm born on this side of Jesus having come. Because I'd have been one of those thick Jews who couldn't have read the Bible and recognized Jesus when he came. And I am so thankful. He says, Paul, you've been privileged to see the right. You know that Jesus is the Messiah. Living on this side, we have such an advantage. You can see the Lord. You can see this is the Messiah. You can see this is the one who fulfills those prophecies in the Old Testament. This is the one God's been talking about since Genesis 3.15. You can see it. And then he says this. And you can hear words from his mouth. You can see it and you can hear it. You can see and hear. Well, what is God's will? God's will is that everybody in the world would come to know him. You see it. You hear it. Verse 15, the next verse. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. You're in the world to be a light in a dark place. Just telling people what you've seen and what you've heard. And expect to be rejected. Get over it. It's what Jesus did for you. And it's his will for us to go and do the same. And to be his witness. You've been chosen to know God and to know his will. The Jews knew God. They were chosen. There's a there's a great line in uh, Fiddler on the Roof. You remember the movie Fiddler on the Roof? Tevya, the milkman, you know? And uh, he says something like, you know, I know that we're the chosen, but couldn't you just choose somebody else once in a while? You remember that? You know? And, and sometimes you might feel like that as a Christian. I know I've been chosen. I know I've been exposed to Jesus. I know I know the will of God. I know he wants me to be in the world as a witness for him. But couldn't you just choose somebody else? Because Why? Because the anti-Semitism is tough. And so on and so forth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just uh, praise you and thank you for this text of Scripture. I think it's so easy to identify with the Apostle Paul here. He's got a whole nation of people rejecting him to the point where they're bringing physical harm, kicking them, trying to kill them. And uh, Lord, he turns right around and shows us what a great way we can make a choice when we experience rejection to return it with love, 
to remember that we're not who those people think we are who reject us, but that we're your people, that we're chosen, that we know your will, that we've seen the Messiah, and that we hear his words from the scriptures. We're so richly blessed, but just like you said to Abraham, you're choosing the Jewish people so that through them all the peoples of the world would hear. And now we see you choose us so that all the peoples of the world would hear. But just like the Jewish people, Father, so often, because of the rejection that we experience as being identified with you, we just kind of cop out. And uh, we enter into this cycle of rejection. Forgive us for forgetting who we really are and why we're really here and why we've been chosen. And help us, Father, to just give ourselves to you afresh and anew. Use us. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.